today I am super lucky because I'm talking to Fiona Yassen and Fiona is an internationally registered psychotherapist. She is the founder and clinical director of the Wave Clinic in Malaysia, which treats teenagers from all over the world who are experiencing mental health difficulties such as eating disorders, trauma, personality disorders, and addictions and she's doing some really amazing work so Fiona thank you so much for joining me well thank you very much for having me it's lovely to be here with you so we thought today it would be really interesting didn't we to talk a little bit about self-harm so I wonder if we could start with perhaps some of the the latest statistics around self-harming amongst teenagers and young people yes I think we I think self-harm is something that um, keeps coming up, doesn't it? And we know that numbers are unfortunately continuing to rise, albeit they're not, it's not huge amounts, but when we look at it on a, on a global basis, it's, it's pretty significant. And some quite a, alarming statistics around the very youngest of the children that we focus on. So that's sort of 10, 11 year old age group. And looking at some research that's just been published in 2023, that's um, focusing on 11-year-old children um, in particular, and about 37% of 11-year-old children have at some point self-harmed or are currently self-harming, so have at some point self-harmed in the last 12 months, which to me is a, a really massive, it's a massive number, but it's also a massive number in this very young age group, because I think traditionally in therapy, see kids coming into us, maybe sort of later in the teenage years. So having this tween group um, really now seeming to sort of begin uh, self-harming behaviours earlier, I think is also a concern as well as overall numbers. And why do you think that's happening? I think parents seem to have noticed more self-harming behaviours after we had all the series of lockdowns. And I think those lockdowns sort of globally are, are being parents from all over suggesting that actually things became much worse for their child during that time or after that time. Now they, they possibly could have done, but actually some research is saying, well, maybe mental health didn't really get worse per se during lockdown and afterwards for children, but we were more at home, we were looking more, we were noticing more, we were, you know, children were more isolated, they were using that as a coping mechanism more often. So I guess that the whys will will sort of come out over the next five or ten years but i think we've got social media and social media can give out some really really wonderful messages for young people around self-harm and, and not engaging and it can also be pretty tricky and in some cases can encourage so i think our young people are growing up in an ever-changing environment we can't get rid of social media we can't get rid of the internet so somehow we need to move ourselves as parents as clinicians as you know the eyes and ears in society to, to be looking at it in a different way and I know you and I've touched on this before but that idea that now some young people are looking to social media but also in terms of finding their identity it's attached to and to mental what you're seeing yeah I think um we we are seeing 
young people sort of exploring identity in, in different ways than, than we have done in, in previous generations. And I think, again, as parents, there's there's many new hurdles there with, with kids coming home and asking, you know, what do pronouns mean and how can I explore this? And, and I think we can encourage really nurturing and positive conversations at home. I think, again, on social media, there's an opportunity to explore things that maybe we wouldn't in the classroom at school or maybe we wouldn't at home and kids are able to use and try different identities and maybe it's not just one but maybe if you've got young people using several different platforms you've got slightly different variations of the young person on each platform so if we also listen and statistics that tell us that young people are spending maybe 50 percent of their time of their leisure time online then again, it's something that we can't ignore, because as soon as we ignore that, we're, we're really kind of ignoring quite a big part of their evolving personality and character traits. So I think as parents, we can be really interested in what's happening online in having discussions that are not punitive discussions. So we're not taking things away or, you know, well, I, I don't really, I don't want you on that anymore, here it goes. But we're asking them, oh, you know, what platforms do you use? And oh, you say you're using lots of different platforms. I wonder if there's a different way that you use them. Do you use one for something and one for something else? And that way we might open sort of more gentle and easy conversations around them getting into identity and, why they're choosing to use different identities online. Thank you. I just thought it was a really interesting point to cover. So in terms, going back to more of the self-harming, who is most vulnerable? I think we know that young people who have pre-existing mental health conditions, so young people who may have be seen as being incredibly sensitive, may have been noted to be anxious, may have had difficulties early years starting at school and dealing with sort of separation from mum and dad, young people, young children, uh, teenagers and young adults who maybe have had significant changes um, in family structure in school, um, children who are presenting to mental health services or, or needing a little bit of support are at greater risk, unfortunately, of then using self-harm as a strategy in some way of coping with life in general. And young people will give us many different reasons as to why they self-harm, but we can really kind of shrink them down and boil them down into just a few groups really of why they do it and how life gets to that point. But when you talk about those few groups, the big categories there, yeah, you can, some of the things that we'll hear them say are around, I had to feel something. And that can come up quite a lot. So like, I, I had to feel, and in which case by doing this, I began to feel. Sometimes that can come along with young people who are talking about numbness. So I, I feel numb, or I feel empty, or there's this sort of feeling around my chest and my tummy that um, feels a bit itchy, a bit scratchy, um, a bit agitated, a bit bored, a bit frustrated. And no matter what I do, it doesn't go away. And sometimes it can be there for a little bit of time. Sometimes it can be there for a really long period of time. And so I do this in order to distract me from that. Um, sometimes those feelings we can 
we can really kind of pick up in kids that um, may look like they've got some of the traits or symptoms of ADHD or ASD quite often that sort of feeling that is around the chest and tummy is one that they can really describe to us quite well. Um, lots of them will talk about taking away the pain inside. So whether it's deflecting from an emotion or a sensational feeling like we've just said, or whether they're able to articulate, actually life feels quite painful right now. And that could mean physical pain or it could mean emotional pain, but it's, it moves me away from that. And sometimes young people will do it to punish themselves or punish others. So it may be that on the back of a really you know, unpleasant discussion at home or really difficult day or difficult argument or friendship fallout at school or something happens online again, then, then we get a period where self-harm becomes um, the vehicle really to let people, others know how much they've hurt them. And there are all sorts of variations, but they tend to be the ones that if you take away the, the words that are describing it and go back to the process of why it happened, you can really get it down to those sort of three categories. It's important to understand the why um, before you start to, to look at alternatives, isn't it? And I know um, there'll be a lot of parents listening, um, and I imagine that lots of them will be thinking, oh, well, self-harm is cutting, um, you know, might be banging your head, but it comes in lots of different forms, doesn't it? really does it really does and i think we we're getting better at noticing the nuances and the, the different ways that, that young people can uh, sabotage as well as harm and of course sabotage also harms in, in the long run so yes cutting cutting tends to be something that we see a lot and quite often a first port of call for young people who are um, self-harming cutting burning um Gossiping is actually a form of self-harm, isn't it? If you think about young people who use that as a way of connecting with others, particularly in school or community environments, and they're, they're known as the person who sort of passes information and will maybe be cut off from one group and then the next. It's, it's actually quite a harmful and harming behaviour. Um, things like pulling hair skin picking, so trichotillomania in, in all of its different guises that we might have young very young children perhaps pulling things like eyelashes or twiddling hair and breaking hair pulling hair then as you get to teenage years it can be um long hair on the arms hair in the armpits hair hair where they're not really wanting hair to be and and, and being sort of quite um sometimes that can go along with not wanting to grow up as well as changing that um so yeah self-harm can come in in many many different ways but i think the ones that we do tend to see most of are the, the sort of cutting and burning and the ones that, that cause sort of superficial damage in the first instance, but then again, you know, can, can also be really needing emergency medical help as well. So as a parent, if you discover or you suspect that your child is self-harming, um, let's start with the self-harm and um, how would you suggest that they talk to them? Well, first of all, it's all right to be scared because I think when we talk about self-harm and parents hear that their child is self-harming or somebody else tells them their child is self-harming, I think for many parents, self-harm and suicide or end-of-life uh, attempts are so very care you know, closely knitted together that it's very easy for us to jump from one to the other 
when we're in panic. So I think in, in the in the kind of words of EasyJet and all those airlines, we have to put some oxygen on first, then we breathe. So we can hear this information. We know it's going to be impactful. We know it's going to be very powerful to hear as parents. And then we need to slow down and really sort of reach out on what we know or, or gently inquiring to find out what we know rather than jump into huge kind of conclusions and, and sort of very far-end assumption about what might be going on. But it's to be able to, I think, open up nurturing conversations. So the other thing that we can do as parents when we're scared, uh, when we're frightened that something's happening, is come back with a bit of a bark and it can sound angry. And if we've got a situation that's already a little bit hot and on fire, the, the last thing we want to do is to come back and, you know, oh my goodness, what are you doing that for? That's stupid. Um, because quite often, you know, our young people will be holding on to those messages of I can't get anything right or I'm stupid or I've got this wrong or I'm useless. So to be able to go in very gently and to find out about why it happens. So there's going to be some things in there that were not, um, that maybe have been bubbling for a longer time. So they're the risk factors that have been going on throughout maybe several years or maybe a lifetime. It can be down to some personality traits, character traits, environment traits, and then there may be some closer risk factors of the immediate event. So really we're wanting to gently kind of inquire about those of you know, what, what might have happened recently. What, you know, have you had anything that's been unpleasant happening over the last little while? And then as parents, when you've got time to come away, maybe and you know, sort of sit down and think about what's been going on. Have I, have I been noticing anxiety over a longer period of time? Have I noticed a low mood? The word depression in kids sometimes doesn't sort of make it into the same sentence. We talk about them being moody or snappy or a bit grumpy, but all of those things can also mean something that looks to us more like depression. So really sort of being having an honest evaluation of what you might have been noticing, withdrawal, isolation, changing friendship group, and talking about all of those things as, as part of it. So you know, I've, I've noticed that your friendship groups changed recently, wondering you know, why that was or you know, whether we could have a chat about that. So I think then as parents, we're wanting to sort of put the jigsaw piece together. But the most important thing is whatever they are doing and however serious or not it appears to you in that first moment, all self-harm needs to have help and needs to have help quickly. I hear... Uh, many parents say, well, you know, it's they're self-harming a bit or they're self-harming by scratching. It's still self-harm and it's not really, again, the, the actual action that we want to look at. It's what's behind the action. So making making a decision to get help quickly, I think, is, is one of the very first things that parents should do. And you mentioned it, but suicidal ideation, and, you know, I've had many parents who've called in really panicked, really, really panicking that their child has has um, mentioned suicide. What advice would you give them in that moment? I think it probably is the worst thing for a parent to hear, isn't it? And the worst thing for a parent to go through. And I know that you and I both, you know, no parents and have parents who who have been through that, and it's a very a very horrible thing for parents to go through. It's also has a ripple effect across communities, doesn't it? So schools and friendship groups and peers also very affected. It's not just the immediate family. 
and there is a little bit of, of contagion in that as well that I you know I, I think that maybe we can come back to but when you're hearing your young person talk about suicide again to realize that it's okay for you to be really really worried and really concerned in that moment and probably quite frightened um so we need to look at it from two points of view who who is going to support the child and how is that going to happen and who is going to support the parents and how is that going to happen so we might want to start thinking in terms of safety plans for young people we also want to think about coping plans for parents because i think the two of them need to run side by side and so often we'll get a, a very abrupt safety plan put in place for a child and we need you know we're left out behind what's going on behind and you've got this sort of train of devastation on the other side so yeah thinking about suicide you know there i think probably to start with the myths and one of the biggest myths that i hear is that if young people are talking about suicide they're not going to do it and i think it's really important for every parent that's you know with us today and listening to us today and every friend of those parents to know that that isn't the case now that's probably one of the worst old wives tales that we've all had to endure that kids who are young adults who are talking about suicide could very well act on that and act on that very quickly so we're always taking everything that is said as you know accurate information and we're always going to take that out and get help with that immediately. So if you've got a young person talking about suicide, the first thing we're doing is to have that assessed. Some people will also say, well, I don't believe it because I believe it's for attention. Um, this is something that they're doing for attention. And again, we're not really interested in the content of what's being said now. We're interested in the process and a really good parenting um, piece of advice around that is when you've got a young person who may use uh, escalating behaviours through self-harm and suicide in order to pull things closer to you, that you're really wanting to react to the severity in that moment. So, okay, I hear you, you've told me that, you know, you, you're feeling suicidal or you're thinking about ending your life or I don't want to wake up tomorrow morning. So what we need to do that now, because I'm taking that so seriously and hearing you and seeing you, we're going to move towards the emergency department to have that properly assessed. And I think that way we're super safe, we're showing that we hear and we see, and we're also really working with that small group of children who may be using it as a proximity or closeness seeking behaviour, that it's not something that, that is going to help their cause in order to get um, attention or get proximity. We are going to deal with it in the same way that we do emergency. Police also, you know, very useful if you've got a child who's threatening suicide at home and you can't move them or you won't move them, calling um, emergency services and getting them to come to you and talk to home is a, is a really good way of being safe. So they're the practical things, but what happens on the inside when you hear that is something completely different, isn't it? And it's, it's really um, that, that fear and that sort of thinking about why has this happened? Why is this happening now? And, and how did we get to this point? Children who have, young people who have other mental health conditions, again, are more at risk of feeling um, suicidal. Or, or sometimes we'll hear them say, I, I just wish this would be over, or I wish I would wake up tomorrow. So if we've got a young person who has pre-existing mental health condition, then we're going to be a little bit more uh, watchful and sensitive around, around what 
might happen. People talk about depression and suicide being very much linked. And of course, there is the link, but is depression on its own enough to um, prompt suicidal thinking or suicidal behaviour? There are lots and lots of young people and adults and, and younger children who are diagnosed with depression who are not suicidal. So I think, you know, the risk factor we know is there, but it's not a foregone conclusion. So not to be scared around depression and thinking that it's going to move in that direction, it's not necessary. Um, while we're in that space of depression, there are some medications that we know could be really helpful for young people who are depressed, anxious, or um, may have other things going on, but we know that some of them can increase suicidal thoughts and, and thinking. So again, in that moment when you're reviewing the situation, has there been a change in medication? Do I need to reach out to my mental health team? So there are so many things that we, we need to think about in that moment. It, it's quite likely that as parents, we're gonna feel quite overwhelmed um, and going again, reaching to child and adolescent mental health professional is going to support you in that overwhelm as well as your young person. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrifying, it's a terrifying moment, isn't it? And, and really, all we've ever wanted to do is to keep them safe and suddenly yes. wondering whether you can actually do that. Because we all know that the services are are very stretched, so yes. it's difficult to, to find the right help contact. It really can, can't it? And, and I think that's that's something that I'm hearing more and more often of um, young people waiting for a very long time to access services. And when they get into one service, if then the presentation looks like it's something else, having to join a different queue for another service, um, looking at young people who are two years in one queue, two years in another queue, which is really unhelpful. I think in that point, you know, having this uh, coping plan for parents, again, is also really useful because we don't think well when we're overwhelmed. When we as parents are feeling really overwhelmed and hearing that our child is self-harming or suicidal is likely to take us to that place, we tend to not make really good decisions at that time. It's really difficult for us to find our own mind in that time. And what we may try and do also is second guess what our child is doing or thinking. So we become almost one mind. So if they're suicidal, we become desperate. The system becomes overwhelmed and desperate. Then we've got nobody making good decisions. So another reason to have this sort of coping strategy, which may be a really well-trusted group of, group of other mums, it may be uh, your own your own family, your own your own mom or your own dad. But maybe that you don't have any of those people, and you are, you know, perhaps needing to go to the GP and see if you can, you know, get an appointment with even the practice nurse if that's easier. Any way in to support at this point is is going to be great. Um, when we're in that position of, of not really being able to work out what's happening for the other person and we're trying to guess we can make quite a lot of stuff up and we can we can kind of get into a, a guessing game with with our young person which really doesn't help them or us so again to be sort of stepping back and realizing that that might be happening for us and um and understanding that however much we love them and however close we are, whilst they're in that place of really, really hurting, we're not going to be able to um, necessarily make the changes that we would like to make and stay away from 
oh, I'm really useless, I'm useless, it's all my fault. You're not any of those things. This is a really difficult place for you to be in. And I had a really sad expression the other day about suicide, which was suicide in, particularly perhaps in young people, and I don't, you know, I'm not sure I agree or whatever with it, but it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yeah, isn't that really sad? And what normally happens, I think, there's uh, there's another saying that, that's sort of similar, which is that it's an abnormal reaction to a normal problem. And I think what we can sometimes think is that we've got an abnormal reaction to an abnormal problem, or maybe even a normal reaction to an abnormal problem. It's normally that, that kids are going through things that um, that maybe other children would be able to, to deal with or, or wouldn't find quite as distressing. Of course, for a, for a minority of children, something really awful may have happened and, and we can't discount that. And we're, you know, we're, we're always got our ten eye out for that. But sometimes it can feel like um, this hope, the hopelessness is, is quite often there. Like there's a, a big element of hopelessness and how do we, as uh, as mental health practitioners and as parents help young people to be able to find hope again um, it can also feel like they don't have the ability to solve the problem so the problem solving skills are quite often out of the way and I think that's where this temporary you know it's a temporary problem but when you're you know, a teenager, a young adult, and you're trying to make sense of all of the things that you're not quite got a hold on yet. Some of the problems that we would see as being fixable, they would just come to us and maybe they won't because friends are much more important during these years than we are. We might be able to work our way through, but they, they might not be able to. So one of the really good parenting skills that we can use throughout tweens, teens and young adulthood is to be helping them to work through problems so to resist the temptation to go in with sticky marshmallow and cover them in it and make everything all okay and work and and to help them to be able to problem solve and that might be as simple as giving them 10 minutes in the mall to be able to go and uh, buy something with some money and come back to you so the little the little bits in these situations are really useful really useful for for kind of navigating these bits and trusting ourselves that we can also navigate these bits but problem solving the, the ability the cognitive process around problem solving looks to be a little bit different in young people who have quite intense end-of-life thinking and the problem solving to them feels a little bit more difficult to manage so when the information comes in of I've got this thing I've you know I haven't passed my A-levels I haven't got the grades I wanted. Um, the problem solving around that, that I can go to clearing or I can do six or I can do a gap year or I can do something else doesn't necessarily come in straight away. And for some young people, it may go from zero to 100, which is that sort of tipping point around end of life thinking very, very quickly. So I think when we hear and we're taking in that information from young people and we hear that they're self-harming or they're suicidal thinking, when we're working through them around what was the problem, what was what's happened in the sort of recent past, we can then kind of help them to think in the moment of different solutions rather than overriding them, but encouraging them. So what 
what, what do you think we might be able to do differently there? If I had a magic wand, what would happen differently? And see what they come back to us with. And, and quite often, you know, there is a really good solution to this temporal problem. Yeah, that's so helpful. Thank you. And then the last thing that I really wanted to put to you is that you often hear, particularly in schools and often actually from parents, I do, and you probably do too, that there's one particular year group where there's a lot of self-harm, uh, where there's a lot of disordered eating. And as a parent, you know, that's really difficult if your child is within that group. What advice would you give them? Yeah, that's a tough one as well, isn't it? And it's something that we do hear more often. And I think schools have got, you know, really big challenges in trying to sort of keep everything together in there when you can see that particular groups or particular year groups may have this thing that we mentioned a little while ago that looks like contagion. And I think what we can do is we can provide really uh, age-appropriate information for our children. So providing facts, because Mr. Google can give some really quite wacky answers, can't he? So when, when kids are looking up things like what is an eating disorder or what is disordered eating, it's really easy to fall into some quite dark material and um, maybe, maybe even material that's encouraging those things. If one child is doing something in a class like self-harming, um, it's quite often that they'll, they'll discuss it with others and it may feel that your young person would like to join in. Around this, around this time, around this developmental sort of period, parents and parents' view on things become much less important than our friends' view on things. And that attachment that we had to mum and dad is somehow sort of pushed away in favour of the attachment that we have to, to our friendship group. So these things can become very big and powerful very quickly. And I think provide information. We can also go to school because we assume that school knows or school may have told us that they know, but they also don't know the answer to everything and it would be unfair to, you know, to expect them to. So maybe if we're as parents going to school and saying, actually, is there a way that we could address this within the year group? Could we have an information session for this year group, factual information session on what does disorder eating look like? What happens when it tips into an eating disorder? You know, can you judge whether someone's got an eating disorder or not by looking at them? Um, the answer is absolutely not. But kids don't know that. You know that it, I think um, because mental health words have become very much part of our everyday, people talk about being a bit OCD, don't they? Or it's, a, it's you know, it's a, that person is a bit, you know, they're, they're a bit OCD around that. And it sort of waters down the real meaning. And, and so young people can think things that, you know, maybe are not as straightforward as, as they appear or um, use the words incorrectly. I also think that these, um, you know, when we can talk to things like Siri and we can give them commands and things, they come up with very bizarre answers and we can shout at them and they do things. I think that's also sort of altered the way that young people use and give information in, in, sort of in these groups. So going to school, getting school to, to be able to back you up, help you as parents on making sure that young people have the right information, making sure you've got the right information available at home. Again, taking mental health advice and um, it, it, you know, getting your, your young person into therapy or having them assessed is, is great. You know, it, it's really helpful. And to be able to, to really have these open discussions with them um, that don't feel punitive, that don't feel that they're going to be punished for, 
for telling you or don't feel that you're going to cut them off from that friendship group you know, taking them away is probably not going to be the solution either so yes it might look really uncomfortable you might have four or five or ten or more children all doing something that looks very similar but moving them away from that isn't isn't going to help them if they're moving towards those groups it will be because there's something in those groups that feels safe in that moment likely feels safe or feels uh, needed um, whether that's popularity or whether it's safety from being able to discuss emotions or safety and being able to discuss things at home so um, really kind of being very gentle around that and exploring that and, and I guess that you know the, the last the last point of call is that you may need to move, move your child from that group eventually or move the school but that's not something that's at the front end of the system there's a, a lot of things that you can do to try and um, repair before you you jump in and maybe also talking to other parents if you know if that feels safe for you as a parent because some groups of parents you know can feel quite unsafe for us I think as mums dads and uh, carers as well so really sort of picking your friends in that and just seeing whether or not you can align to be able to do something together. Well, I suppose I would just add to that, that the, that idea that, you know, there's an awful lot of shame around a lot of that behaviour. Yeah. So I suppose as a parent, just being really careful that you don't shame all friends. Yeah. And shame around our own view of ourselves and our parenting, because it's like, what did I get? It's always, what did I get wrong? Isn't it? That's the place that mums go to first. What did I do? It's because I went to work, didn't go to work. It's because I weaned them uh, by allowing them to choose their weaning. It's because I weaned them by so where We start then, and it doesn't really change, does it? We go back to blaming ourselves all the time. And, and the fact is, we know that the mental health conditions, which, you know, both of these things that we're talking about today, our mental health conditions, our, our concerns that we have on the mental health sphere, they're not caused by mums and dads. Mums um, and dads can maintain them, and I think there's something in there that we can explore further, but they're certainly not causal and they're not to blame, and there's lots of pieces of the jigsaw that come together to get us to this place. Amazing. Fiona? I would love to make another podcast with you at some point, but I think for this one, I, I think you've given everybody some really, really fascinating, helpful information, and I'm deeply grateful. Thank you very much for having me. I'd love to come and talk to you. Oh, amazing. So there you go. This is our latest podcast, and, and, and there'll be another one soon, I'm sure, but Fiona's just great words of wisdom. Thank you all for